All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, and this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. Hey, Dr. Burley, Chris Lines. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good, good, good. Hey, thanks for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So, um, so as I mentioned previously, uh, OCD Straight Talk is a is a podcast that's really designed to um, educate and empower uh, individuals. Uh, really uh, across the world that might be suffering from clinically significant anxiety symptoms. Um, and as the, the name suggests, we tend to, uh, to limit our discussion to obsessive and compulsive symptomatology um, uh, and more like the, the nuts and the bolts um, skills and strategies uh, of the treatments that work. But in the more recent months, uh, there's there's been this sort of uh, yearning to be able to expand or broaden uh, the the horizons of the podcast to talk uh, about uh, symptom dimensions and presentations that extend beyond the uh, the exclusive and mere confines of of OCD. Uh, so I, I wanted to be able to have you on the podcast to talk about uh, post traumatic stress disorder. And um, and the effective treatment uh, of trauma conditions. So, okay. could we could we start with um, with just a uh, just for the, the audience, just a uh, something of a, of a pithy overview of of um, sort of what you're what you're doing right now, your your professional uh, background. Um, and what, sort of what you're doing to, to keep yourself busy, if you will, uh, professionally speaking. Yeah, sure. Um, so currently, uh, I am, uh, the president and CEO for children's home or, uh, Bethany children's home, uh, which is an organization that started, uh, more than 150 years ago as an orphanage. And currently today we serve, uh, youth who have encountered a form of trauma in one way or another as a residential setting. Mm -hmm. uh, we are an organization that works in trauma-informed care and treatment, and um, we're a certified organization that specializes in uh, working with youth that have been trafficked uh, in human trafficking and or wow. are at uh, a greater risk of human trafficking. So you're um, so your the organization that you're overseeing really centers in some way obviously on the care of individuals who have encountered all manner of traumatic experiences but it sounds like the organization focuses on the treatment of trauma. Yes, yes. And so therefore we do encounter youth and children that have experienced um, or maybe diagnosed um, with 
a, a certain level of PTSD or uh, trauma background. And to the extent that some children do come to us with disassociation uh, as a uh, component of what their trauma has brought them to. So, and this could be from physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, um, circumstances where they've been neglected or uh, abandoned by parents. In fact, we're seeing more youth today that have um, been abandoned uh, mm. by a parent uh, in the age range of probably nine to 12 year old youth. So, so when, uh, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. If you have a question. So, so when we're looking at uh, cri the criterion A uh, for the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, the criterion A being pulled from uh, DSM-5 of the American Psychiatric Association. Um, when we're looking at Criterion A, there's this, uh, there's an event that's required uh, in, in real time, right? An event that one experiences, um, and it sounds like you're pointing to an array, almost, a, I don't want to say an endless possibility, but but an, certainly an array of, of potential candidates that could serve as uh, ideologically speaking, as uh, the event for causation or onset of symptoms. Is that right? Yes. Um, so some of the children that we would serve would be considered, you know, it could be an acute trauma or a chronic trauma mm. uh, that would be that event. And based on whatever that experience is, um, that that child has encountered that would bring them to us uh, through a referral system of the counties of children and youth services is usually our main uh, referral source. So to answer your question, yes, they, um, if it's a single event that could bring about the trauma, and, and a lot of times I use an example, like I have a teenage son and he got his driver's license when he was 16 years old. Um, within the year, um, unfortunately, he had an accident mm. uh, where someone had hit him. Oh, wow. And I use that as an example of an acute circumstance. There was an event that happened that caused a trauma that his response to that and reaction, emotional reaction, what I don't want to drive by the location where I had the car accident or I want, I don't want to drive in a car again. Um, and therefore we had some work to do based on that experience, that event yeah. to help him overcome the trauma so that it did not turn into a PTSD situation. Now that's interesting. That's interesting to help him overcome the trauma so that it doesn't or didn't turn into a PTSD situation. So can you talk about, uh, I think that the audience might be interested to, to hear your take on this. Can you talk about the difference between someone who is who ex encounters uh, a traumatic experience? So there you have Criterion A in the Diagnostic Manual, and maybe the individual um, is experiencing some anxiety uh, or having some sort of impact or response resultant from the experience, um, and someone who presents with uh, with diagnostic criteria met for post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you follow my question? Um, can you elaborate a little bit more? On what yeah, yeah. Forgive me. So, so what I'm meaning to ask is, um, there's there's individuals who um, who have some symptoms as a result of a traumatic experience, but don't necessarily um, uh, meet. 
diagnostic criteria for PTSD, for example, and then there's others who clearly do meet diagnostic criteria. Can you talk about the difference between individuals who have been impacted uh, by trauma but aren't meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD and those who are? Does that make better sense? And I think the, the the thought process here, and as I deliver this, is I believe every human being has been wounded in one way or another. Mm. Um, and in many cases, a wound is maybe an unintentional circumstance that has occurred in a person's life that could result in a... Um, a trauma that would develop into a PTSD diagnosis. And so therefore, as we all encounter things from day to day, and I'll use the example of a car accident, you know, this is an unintentional experience that someone may have, and the degree to what that car accident may have led to um, may result in uh, a, a greater uh, level of anxiety or fears um, related to that may be triggered by experiences with driving. And so um, how we learn to cope or in our developmental years, how we may have encountered certain things and develop a resiliency or a coping mechanism, uh, whether healthy or not unhealthy, we incorporate those into our lives through the years in determining how we are going to manage those the different levels of trauma mm. and so um and that's why there's such an importance in understanding uh, acute trauma versus chronic trauma mm. because there's an impact on brain development during those time of uh pivotal years that uh an individual is uh going through physical development um and what kind of traumas they may be experiencing during that time so would it be yeah yeah so would it be reasonable then based upon what you've said for me to just to sort of understand the difference um between the two groups to to be essentially that the first group that is to say the subclinical group who has encountered a traumatic event but again symptomatology is subclinical that these individuals manage um, uh, better uh, the experience and and to use your word are more resilient than than the second group that that is uh, suffering from a clinical reaction. Would that be a fair uh, summary, or did I did I miss it? No, I, I definitely would say that, and I think because we all encounter life circumstances from day to day how one person may encounter, uh, like the example of a car accident, mm. may be very different from another person who encounters the same car accident because there, there may be a history of experiencing car accidents and therefore turn that into a chronic experience. So you're, you're hitting it uh, right on the head, but every human being is going to have a different outcome because of whatever circumstances have contributed to their lives up to the time of the experience of the trauma. So background so, is going to have a pretty important impact here. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, tell me this, and I'm sort of getting off the, the, the topic, at least to some extent. Um, but 
I think that the one of the questions that emerges, at least uh, within the, the, as it were, the DNA of the podcast is, is there something in terms of a, a strategy or in terms of a, of a skill? Is there something that individuals can do who maybe are uh, experiencing some um, uh, uh, you know, s- some trauma reaction that, that may be that may be subclinical? Uh, is there something from your perspective that they can work to do uh, to manage, uh, regardless perhaps of their of their uh, biological makeup or or of their uh, social experiences, longitudinally speaking, in their lives? Is there something that, to your mind, they can do in terms of being able to better manage or bounce back amidst um, having had a traumatic experience? That's a great question. I think um, here again, every human being is going to gravitate towards things that are going to bring about a sense of security and stability. Yeah. And so for some people, that may be, you know, my go to when I start feeling a level of anxiety and stress related to um, a historical trauma is going to. Uh, it, it, it's going to fall into maybe a continuum of what is positive and what may not be so positive. So uh, the examples that I use um, when kind of teaching this concept, I think of CBT. And so a cognitive behavioral therapeutic approach would be, you know, if I'm faced with a thought uh, that would produce anxiety for me, um, what is the thought creating in my feeling? And so I use an example of like um, the trauma of maybe losing a pet, um, the pet that you have a relationship with, with that pet and the thoughts that may relate to it, I have a feeling of sadness. And then therefore, maybe my behavior is one that, you know, what I um, may engage in comfort food to uh, satisfy this this feeling of anxiety and, and sadness that I have about the loss. Um, and so I, it becomes a cycle. And so what I would introduce is how do we interrupt that cycle, whether it's mm. in the thought process, if it's in uh, disrupting the emotion attached to the thought or the behavior of eating and maybe going and saying, you know what, I'm going to eat ice cream. Right. And ice cream is going to comfort me uh, because of this trauma. So I create a distraction or a disruption to that cycle in one of those three areas. Um and that would be uh, one example of an approach that I might take on managing or dealing with a trauma that um, that w- we can do ourselves, um, that we can engage in and plan out and take control of. Right. So let me ask you this. I recall um, back in, um, oh, man, what year was it? 2005, maybe, when Hurricane Katrina happened. Um I had the privilege uh, of of uh, of going uh, to the location where the hurricane, the eye of the hurricane, actually had had hit land, and uh, and I was involved in in body excavation and and body recovery, and um, you know, and needless to say, uh, I was exposed to really horrific things that had happened to people, the loss of their homes, obviously the loss of their lives. That was the nature of my particular assignment. Uh, again, was, was, uh, was, uh, excavating the bodies from, um, 
uh, from uh, uh, the water or from um, uh, sometimes trees or from um, uh, um, cars. They had drowned in their cars or whatever it was. Uh, so in, in any case, the, the, uh, the, the question that, that emerges for, for, uh, me, I suppose is, well, why didn't I develop post-traumatic stress disorder? But, but I think that I can recall back in those in, if I kind of rewind time and I go back to those moments now, you know, 15, uh, 16 years ago. I can recall having a significantly reduced appetite. I can recall feeling uh, depressed, kind of a hopelessness about myself. I, I can remember that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think that part of at least my my own um, my own thought process, and I, I I would base this to some extent upon the research, but but in my own perhaps thinking as a clinician, um, and I would really want to hear your response to this is, well, I think part of the reason that I didn't develop develop clinical trauma as a result of it was because I had to keep going and I had to keep doing it. Um, right. There was this sort of like, I wasn't able to be traumatized and then break company with what was happening and move on. I, I had to sort of keep uh, sort of immersed in the environment and the situation and I, I'm particularly interested to hear what, what your thoughts there would be, because I'm hearing you talk about uh, young kids who are, they're having to kind of uh, be immersed in really horrible circumstances. And either that uh, can work to their advantage, but in many cases, it actually is the opposite. So what do you think about what I've said? What do you think about that? Well, there's... There's several factors that I think come into play there. You know, we all uh, have a tendency to kind of know fight or flight mm -hmm. um, components. But I think also when I was speaking about resiliency, it, you know, we have a tendency to compartmentalize things that may happen in our lives. And I think there's a healthy compartmentalizing and there's also the not so healthy compartmentalizing that we never actually deal with what it is that we see. But that mm. brings me to the whole concept of survival. Yeah. You know, what you're speaking about is survival. I can't just have a breakdown right now an emotional breakdown and still think that i'm going to be able to function and i think this is one of the reasons why people have a tendency to shy away from things like counseling because they think they're not going to be able to have emotional control over themselves and still be able to function and go to their jobs or engage in their relationships and just do the daily functioning of their lives mm -hmm. so have a tendency to say, well, I'm not going to go to counseling because it's going to open up the can of worms that I've been trying to manage and maintain throughout my life. Now, um, a good counseling experience would be teaching how do we take what you have compartmentalized, take it out and offer an appropriate amount of time during a session to explore those things to allow for healing and then be able to put those things back into the place where they are compartmentalized, where the person is taking control and not having to fear of not having control over their emotions. So that would be a perspective that I look at that I think a, a compartmental, a healthy compartmentalizing is, you know what, this isn't going to control me. I'm not going to lose out on an emotional, um, you know, um, 
difficulty of controlling myself, but I'm going to control those emotions and be able to work through and process uh, whatever the feelings are and what they're related to. Um, but that's part of the process of the healing journey that yeah. we really, uh, with the youth that I work with, that we really try to impose. It's not a punitive measure when a behavior is being acted upon that may be related to uh, a trauma or, you know, and, and I find it interesting because I know your podcast is about OCD. But there's a lot of OCD behaviors that may be results of a trauma um, that a person has encountered. And um, that may also be a result of a PTSD diagnosis, that if I engage in this OCD um, behavior, it's going to help lessen my experience or my emotional challenges related to the trauma. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's helpful. So the, the idea is, from what I'm hearing you say, again, to sort of separate a couple of groups is one group works to uh, to manage the feelings, the thoughts that might be resulting from a traumatic exposure instead of allowing those uh, feelings and those thoughts to manage them. But also there's this notion, you use the term compartmentalization, um, there's this notion of they're going to work to process those thoughts, feelings, and experiences, whereas other individuals who go on to develop uh, you know, clinical symptomatology perhaps may not do as well in terms of, uh, of um, managing thoughts and feelings and in time unpacking and processing those experiences. Is that right? for what we tend to see is a person who compartmentalizes in an unhealthy way results in symptoms of other behaviors um, or other circumstances in a form of trying to manage their coping mm -hmm. of whatever that trauma may be. And so that may result in drug and alcohol usage or um, a form of self-harm without even realizing that they're engaging in those things as a form of their coping mechanisms. Right. So um, the goal as a therapist who's working with an individual who has encountered this is to help replace, use replacement behaviors um, of the unhealthy symptoms in order to engage an individual to better function uh, with coping skills that are going to benefit them and be more in line with a healthier outcome so that their healing process would be um, beneficial. So it sounds like maybe you're, you're speaking in terms of individuals who, who go on to develop, again, uh, symptoms of clinical significance uh, exactly. might work. What's that? Exactly. Yeah, they, they, they might work to avoid internally and that is to say feelings and thoughts and processing and to avoid externally meaning to avoid triggers or reminders and and, and there again those individuals are not um uh exercising uh, appropriate and effective um compartmentalization again is is that what i'm hearing you say yeah and i think so therefore, a lot of times when we're talking about some of these diagnoses or these circumstances, people have a tendency to feel like they're captive to what their historical experiences have been. Mm. And the 
of a, a healthy therapeutic process would be to not be captive um, to those experiences that would result in an acute trauma or turn into a chronic trauma and therefore um, keep them uh, or uh, keep them in their PTSD. So going back to the, the example I gave of my teenage son driving, you know, had I not um, really push for him to experience driving again in a safe environment or to eventually drive by the location where he had the car accident, I would have been facilitating or helping him to stay captive to the experience that would result or could result in, you know what, I'm not going to drive anymore. I'm not going to put myself out there and run the risk of, of being injured as opposed to taking back control of the experience and saying, you know, I'm not going to be captive to it. Right. And therefore I need to work through what happened in order to come out on the other side yeah. and uh, take control of the, that emotional set. So and therefore change the behavior. Right. So now you're using language that, that, uh, with which this audience is really familiar. So, so now we're talking about, as you say, being captive and avoiding, uh, the anxiety, working to manage the anxiety by way of avoiding again, triggers or reminders. Uh, you have that external and that internal, uh, avoidance that's that, that, um, that you're, that you're sort of describing that you're working to, to not allow to happen, uh, for, for your son, um, versus, um, versus individuals who would go ahead and, and work to resist that avoidance. Like you're, you're that that's the strategy you're using to try and not allow the avoidance to happen. And in quote unquote, exposing, um, ourselves to these anxiety producing situations in, in this particular instance, um, a location or, or, a or a, or a car or, or perhaps sitting behind the wheel or whatever, uh, that allows the processing to really begin to take place and the anxiety, uh, responses to begin to, uh, to re to reduce in severity. Is that right? Yes. And, and so along that same line of, um, what we're talking about, like there's a physical reaction, mm. you know, what I think te people tend to forget about is, you know, when we experience something like a car accident, there's a chemical reaction within our bodies that is going to have an impact on, and, and obviously depending on the severity of the accident, but, you know, we're going to have um, adrenaline that it's going through our system. And so when we're working to, um, not be captive to this experience we're also dealing with a physical element that uh every one of us would encounter so that involved and may involve things like okay um an individual may encounter a headache or physical body aches and those type of things that are um a result of the memory of what the encounter was. And so we have to take that into consideration when we're working to, um, to bring the exposure to what had happened in order to not stay captive to the experience. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It makes good sense. Um, so I, I'm watching the time here and I'm aware that we've got about, about three minutes left, at least in this segment. So I'm, I'm going to, to kind of check in with you to see how much time you have. Um, I, I've got a, another few minutes here at least, 
and I'd like to talk to you about um, about therapeutic modalities. Uh, cool. So one one of the one of the things that I'm really aware of is that research shows that about 50% of individuals who are meeting diagnostic criteria, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to come back to trauma here, but I'm, I'm going to sort of leave the room as it were for just a moment. Uh, individuals presenting with social anxiety disorder, about 50% of individuals in that particular uh, uh, population don't ever actually seek therapeutic intervention. So they'll just literally go on to suffer for, for decades of time. Again, about 50% of those um, in, in that particular population. And my, my, um, my guess is that um, that that statistic is not exclusive and unique to social anxiety disorder, but that uh, individuals meeting diagnostic criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder or specific phobia, panic disorder, and of course, post-traumatic stress disorder, there would be certain individuals uh, within uh, that population, uh, whatever the specific percentages would be, that would never go to to counseling or would never seek clinical intervention. Uh, and so I think that part of what I wanted to be able to talk to you about is, well, what can individuals who just listen to podcasts and and it's pretty pretty uh, regular that I'll say on the podcast that this post this podcast is not designed or intended to take the place of evidence based psychotherapy. Uh, you know, that individuals who are listening are encouraged to go and see therapists, you know, qualified, competent individuals who can help them to make meaningful therapeutic progress, uh, you know, in a in a time sensitive um, and limited kind of way. So that said, I want to be able to talk to you about clinical interventions for those who do decide to go uh, to to therapy and for those who um uh, who um, uh, who are meeting diagnostic criteria? Uh, you know, I, I want to be able to talk to you about that. Um, so, <clears throat> so now you have been a uh, a trainer of clinicians for a really long time. I mean, you've been training uh, professional counselors and, and uh, psychotherapists longer than I have been treating patients. I mean, you're a, a longtime trainer, a wonderfully experienced uh, psychotherapist. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, of course. Um, so I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on what are one, what are the available modalities uh, for, uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder, for the, for the trauma reactions. And then two, um, which ones are, are the most empirically supported? And I suppose this is three, although it's related to number two, uh, what's your go-to, um, approach or approaches? So I kind of a mouthful question. Um, yeah. And it's a great question, and I think modalities have evolved over time. Right. Um, and first of all, just thanks for saying that about the work that I've been doing. Um, oh, I yeah. do enjoy teaching and um, working with uh, students who are working to be counselors because my philosophy is that every human being has a right and deserves to heal from the unfortunate life circumstances that they may have encountered, mm. um, whether it's traumatically based or to what level that trauma has taken place. But having said that, you know, there are 
a lot of people will look at different modalities uh, from a therapeutic standpoint and every individual deserves the attention to what would work best for them and to individualize it. So for example, I may start off with a, CB, uh, a cognitive behavioral approach and then move to um, maybe a solution focused approach or, you know, I, I really want to hone in on what the client's needs are, um, what is it that they're presenting with and how best to help them look at their historical trauma and what has held them captive. Um, but I think in the more recent years, and I say more recent years, this could be 10 to 15 years, there's a, a stronger neurological approach uh, of modalities that are working with individuals with OCD and PTSD, uh, anxiety disorders and phobias. And I've been able to really observe um, the healing process um i am reluctant to ever say cure but i think there is definitely a journey of what that healing looks like for uh each individual and what may work for one individual may not work for another and so it's not a cookie cutter approach that i would take um but i have uh, observed the use of emdr eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or a neurobiofeedback experience that some therapists have been trained in to utilize with clients um, based on severity of the your trauma that has uh, involved cap capturing them so that they cannot break out of what the trauma has done to them. And that may have caused things from uh, disassociation or that they are in a sense of uh, repetitious behaviors in, in a form of helping to comfort them so that they're not um, necessarily feeling rawness. Right. Let, let me jump in here if you don't mind. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, I hate doing that. But I, before we get too far away from from something that you had said that I think is really, really important, at least from my own perspective, you had talked about um, eye movement and uh, um, uh, EMD, uh, desensitization reprocessing, forgive me. <laughs> and uh, and you had talked about uh, uh, biofeedback and and then um, cognitive behavioral techniques and solution focused therapy and and so you had talked about a couple of different modalities or therapeutic approaches and of course there are are others uh, too that uh, you know that that uh, that clinicians use and and for which there are uh, clinical trials and outcome data and so on but one of the remarks that you made that I think was of real importance was. That, uh, that clinicians might be trained to use biofeedback or they might be trained to use EMDR or they might be trained to engage prolonged exposure uh, or, or cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever, solution-focused, et cetera. I, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on clinicians who work to engage therapeutic approaches like, for example, EMDR, uh, who may not really be trained to do so uh what what's your what's your take on that sort of uh circumstance what do you think about that well i guess my inquiry would be why are they going to attempt to apply something that they may not have taken 
the opportunity to uh, gather or further understand the basis of the, the therapeutic intervention and then therefore um, effectively apply it. Well, the answer is because it works. That, that, that's why they're, they want to use it because there's good data uh, that, that supports it ability to truly understand it and apply it and understand when I say understand it, it may not work for every client. Okay. But yeah, so fair enough. But I, but I think that the point stands that individuals will gravitate toward using something like EMDR or prolonged exposure or whatever, because there's good outcome data that supports uh, the use of these, again, these interventions or modalities. Right. But there's that question of, of, you know, you know, what, what, what do we uh, not really, what do we do, but you know, what should patients do, uh, when they're working with someone who's not formally trained and is, and, and, uh, is using that intervention? What do you think about that? Um, that's interesting. Um, I haven't really uh, given that too much thought as far as, um, because I, I don't think I've fully encountered that. Um, I think most therapist or most clients should be interviewing their therapist anyway, um, just to have a greater understanding about their approaches and what their philosophy and style is right. um, to pursuing the, the journey of what the client's desires are, whether it's a healing or a behavioral change or whatever that might be. Well, and if there is a connection to that therapist who is not only experienced and knowledgeable, but has an ability to connect with the client for the best outcomes of what the client's looking for. Right. So I, I strongly suggest that clients should be interviewing their therapist. In my first sessions with clients, I tell them, you know, if you don't like me, that's okay. It's not, uh, I, I'm not offended if you don't like me as a therapist, if there's something I'm doing that bothers you. Um, my goal is to help you get to the, the desired outcome, the goals. And if I stand in the way of that, I want to get you. So for example, when I say I stand in the way of that, if I, if just the fact that I'm a, a, a big man that has a beard and I resemble someone in the traumatic history that of that client, that could be what stands in the way of that client working through their issues. That every time that client's going to come and see me, I'm a trigger for them to maybe a, a former abuser. Right, um, but but I think that it's it right, but I think it's likely that individuals who aren't making progress in psychotherapy, as a general principle, I don't I don't mean to say uh, there aren't exceptions. I I think that's absolutely true, right? But as a general principle, I think oftentimes individuals who are not making meaningful therapeutic progress in, in treatment, it's not because of a of a transference reaction, right? It's not because the clinician is reminding them of somebody else, but it's more likely that the clinician him or herself is inadequately trained uh, to engage that particular modality. Would you agree? Or I know you had said, I, I don't really know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I think that's a good point. And it's 
it's interesting that you say that because in my teaching experience, you know, I think one of the greatest challenges that new counselors face is the imposter syndrome. Like, do I really know enough to work with this client to help this client? And I, I think a well-trained therapist uh, or, or counselor is going to, and I tell my students this all the time, rely on your basic skills. Things that you have already been taught is how to effectively communicate, having reflective listening skills, like draw on what it is uh, that you've been taught and then develop those techniques, those interventions that um, and, and be honest and be genuine with your clients. That you, we don't have all the answers, but let us try these techniques. Um, let us try to incorporate maybe imagery work, which is a part of EMDR, and then see where that goes, because that is about taking control. Uh, an individual who has encountered trauma and and has PTSD usually has a sense of um, not feeling in control of what their experiences are. And so how do we help build that up? And that may be doing some imagery work as a technique, which is the foundation, uh, the concept of safe space for the clients with EMDR. Um, does that make sense? Oh yeah. And, and individuals who are uh, who are not only tr individual clinicians, that is to say, not necessarily consumers of mental health services, but but clinicians or psychotherapists who are uh, who are trained adequately and and certified to do EMDR work, uh, they are listed on a, on a database, a national database somewhere. Is that right? Uh, for EMDR, yes. Um, they some may be. I know some are not. Okay, so, so some individuals who are certified by uh, by uh, the EMDR Training Institute uh, may not necessarily be identified nationally as such. Is that right? Correct. Right. So I think that that and, and what's that? I'm okay, I'm go ahead. Therapists have opted out of being identified in that on the um, for uh, reasons of getting overwhelmed with clients and so they, mm. when you're on such a um a list uh, so to say yeah um, and, and it's not to say that you know people don't want clients it can be an abundance of people reaching out who are wanting services uh, for certain things. And, right. uh, it's a lot for some of the private practice clinicians to be able to navigate and manage when they're receiving upwards of 50 to 75 calls a day on, um, people wanting EMDR. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, um, one of my passions, and and I'm not sure that you necessarily know this, but w one of my passions, uh, not just you know, uh, diagnostically or symptomatologically speaking, but, but just in terms of, you know, uh, both personally and professionally is, is, is treating OCD well, right. Is, is, is doing the work competently and, and skillfully, uh, and, you know, doing it really uh, basing it upon, you know, uh, empirically supported practices and so on. Um, and, uh, and, Part of the, like I say, that this podcast exists uh, to educate and empower individuals. So, what am I trying to say here? That I, 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 I find that individuals around the world oftentimes are left with 
uh, information that isn't necessarily correct, right? They, they, they maybe read uh, information, as I sometimes say on Billy Bob's blog post, you know, they'll, they'll get somebody's opinion on something that it turns out actually, if, if a professional were to speak to that, it turns out it's not actually true or, or at least not fully accurate. And so I think that, I think that, that, that individuals, some individuals don't want to be put on a database. I think that that helps to shape the dynamic where there's this sort of gray area between those who are appropriately trained to do trauma work and those by way of EMDR and those who are not, uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I mean, now that you've kind of put it that way, I, I hear what you're saying. So for example, um, to be a, a trauma informed organization that I work with, right. Um, there's a clearinghouse of evidence-based trauma-informed approaches that um, all residential organizations can ascribe to. And so then we incorporate that into the curriculum uh, that all of the employees and team members are trained in Mm -hmm. to understand. And then we're um, accredited by the Joint Commission, the National Joint Commission in the United States that will look at that and establish us as um, one of those organizations. So the organization gets... Yeah. So the organization itself uh, is put on a database and is certified and identified as a trauma focused organization and and thereby the individuals uh, who are employed there are trauma informed and certified clinicians in that respect. Or or they may not be uh, clinicians. They may be uh, lay people who are operating in that trauma-informed care approach Mm -hmm. because um, that would include your direct support professionals, you know, that would include your transporters are trained in all of that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that um, everybody is a certified master's level clinician who's trained in these techniques um, because you, uh, you know, youth are going to come in contact with all varied variations of individuals um and that's why you know as an organization we conduct our training um for every single employee right well we're gonna leave it there i um i have to tell you that i i feel like this conversation could just go on and on not only because i have just tremendous respect for you uh both personally and professionally um uh, you have um um just taught me uh such a profound amount and had such a great impact upon me again, both personally, uh, and, and professionally, uh, you were, you know, once upon a time, a, a, a professor of mine and, uh, uh, and I, and I count you uh, just a, a, a dear friend and you've just taught me so much, Dr. Burley. Uh, so I hate, I hate to say, well, we got to leave it there. Uh, but, but the reality is that, you know, we got to leave it somewhere. So I feel like we're sort of leaving some loose ends, uh, in terms of what we had discussed, uh, but I really, really appreciate your, your, I know that you're a, a, a man in demand uh, with lots and lots of responsibilities. Uh, so thanks very much uh, for being yeah. willing to come on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope this was beneficial to your listeners and, you know, beneficial to the healing journey that everybody is on um, with their life circumstances. So thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely.